Okay, right, let's try this again. So as I said, this is an introduction to helping and helping theory um, and, and really de developing kind of models of effective helping. Um, when we look at training in, in therapy, and I'll, I'll use master's degree as an example, most good master's degree programs in counseling, you actually will spend the majority of your time doing self-therapy. Um, and during that time, what you'll be doing is learning effective hearing skills and listening skills. And, and this is one thing I really want to press with this group. The number one skill of an effective helper, an effective group facilitator is the ability to listen. And when we look at individuals who do not successfully make it through master counseling programs, it's because they don't achieve the skill of listening they they they, they just don't get they, they don't pass their their uh, you know what would be called oral exam or whatever it may be on listening skills and a lot of people do enter the helping fields feeling like they are good listeners um, but as we will see the skill takes a lot of development it's not something that is natural to us and so um, I encourage you to take that portion and really start to develop that ability of listening. But there's also other skills that we need to talk about, but we'll start with um, uh, theory and, uh, and kind of models of helping as we get started. But I wanna start with a story. Um, because helping is really about a group process and the facilitator's job is to really get the group to move towards action through little movements, through little suggestions. And, and I have a story um, because I was raised and I spent much of my young adulthood in, in the Rocky Mountains in Idaho, Montana, Wyoming area that surrounded Yellowstone National Park. Um, and, and, you know, kind of like uh, individuals who live on Tuc in Tucson or, or, or on the nation, if we wanted to get away, we, we went to, we go to like Rocky Point or up in the mountains or, or somewhere like that. Well, where we went uh, in, in this area is we went to Yellowstone. And it was always interesting to me because uh, the thing that, that, that my family wanted to go watch uh, as we were going through Yellowstone and, and wanted to explore um, are, are bears. I never understood why they wanted bears versus, you know, cute little birds and, you know, things that don't eat you. But the thing that, that, that uh, my family always wanted to go and explore and go and find in Yellowstone is, is a bear. Now, one thing about Yellowstone Park is if you're on the main roads, you're very unlikely to see a bear. In fact, some of the you know, TikToks of, oh, I spotted a bear in Yellowstone along the road, that's actually really rare. In fact, um, only about 3% of people who visit Yellowstone each year actually, even if they have the intent to see bears or something like that, um, actually see them. The way 
The reason is, is because in order to really get into the nature of Yellowstone, you have to go off of the main roads and onto these, what we call byways and, and, and off trail areas. So, and these off trail areas um, are really with a vehicle, they're one way in and they're one way out. Most of them have steep cliffs on both sides or, or in Yellowstone, you can't go off of driven paths. It's actually, you could actually get cited for it. Um, and so you have to drive in one way and exit one way, and you can't really turn around. And so one spring, anyways, um, we were going through Yellowstone, and it happened to be a very, very wet winter, wet, wet year. And then with a heavy winter, we had a lot of, lot of snow and a lot of uh, snowfall but we had a really, really warm and wet spring, which made the fall off from the snow and the rain uh, very, uh, very quick. And it saturated the water. I mean, saturated the water, it saturated the land uh, to the point that roots and trees were very unstable. And if anyone knows about pine trees, their roots don't go very deep. They stay close to the ground. And, one time we were driving through one of these bypasses and a microburst hit. And uh, it resulted in a big tree falling across the road. Now, when we were driving, we drove up and we, we stopped and we noticed there was about 10 cars in front of us. And so me and, and uh, uh, my father-in-law and everyone got out and we walked up. And the thing that we noticed is that there were a bunch of people sitting around this tree that was laying across the road. And when I talk about people, I'm talking about um, everyday people. Uh, if I remember, there was a, uh, just, just a, a individuals. Um, uh, there was uh, and, uh, anywhere from people who worked, uh, you know, things like construction to there was an engineer. There was uh, uh, some very kind of really working people who were just looking at this tree that landed across the road and wondering what to do. And the one thing that we noticed is that on the tree stump, they had all of these little items. They had a... a uh, a tire jack, a car jack, a little hand axe, a rope, and a hammer. And they even, uh, I couldn't find a picture of this, there was a blanket laying on top of the stump and they were looking at these items trying to wonder how do we use what we have to move the tree out of the way because that was going to be the only way for everyone to get out. Well, what happened is all of these people, and, and by the time uh, I was up there, 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 we collected about 15, 20 people sitting around this tree, wondering how to move it. And then all of a sudden, the tree slightly lifted. And everyone looked up the tree. And at the end of the tree, there was this young kid lifting up 
the top of the tree. Now, if anybody knows about pine trees, it's heaviest at the bottom and it gets lighter as it goes towards the top. And here was this young kid, he just tipped up the tree. And it was almost like magic. Everyone standing around that tree looked at each other and it was like a light bulb moment that they realized if that young kid could lift the top of that tree, if all of them took a portion of the tree and tilted it kind of like a pendulum across the road that would fall over on the other side. And so they did. And sure enough, the, they got the tree to the other side of the road by pushing it like a pendulum and everybody got out and everybody was fine, okay? Now, this was a really good experience for me um, because it was during a time I was, I was doing therapy, I was doing treatment and doing group work and really trying to figure out an analogy to what it means to be an effective helper, an effective group leader, a group facilitator. And I remember this story every time I walk into a, a group setting because if you look at this example, it was just that little push from someone that made it so everybody else had a light bulb moment. And despite having all the tools, despite having all the intellectual and working knowledge of, of that tree, of, of, of life and construction, engineering, and all of those things, it took a push from, from someone to say, hey, let's do an action, okay? And, and I use this example to, to really facilitate that as a facilitator, we don't necessarily need to have all of the answers. Indeed, we'll talk about the humanistic theory where that states that individuals have the answers in them. Most people know what they need to do. It's just the job of the facilitator, the job of the therapist is to bring those answers out in the individual to help them go beyond what's blocking their their ability to see a better life or an improved life or to stop uh, an addiction or to get beyond um, uh, trauma. Um, and that's really what we're going to be talking about is that effective facilitation and helping people to clear their minds and clear their ability to a path of health and wellness. So, I wanted to start with this story because, because it has always resonated with me and in my practice. So um, uh, keep, keep that in mind though. So what we're going to be talking about next is really theories, okay? And, and uh, when you're done with your master's degree, which I hope you all go on and get and and you're at some professional thing, or even in your later years, you're going to be asked, what is your theoretical orientation? 
And to be honest, uh, most good therapists will say, well, I'm eclectic, meaning that I take something from all theories and I use them to in, in, in my own practice. Um, some will say I, I, I have this very solid theory, maybe it's Freudian psychoanalysis or humanistic or Adlerian theory, and they, they go with that in their practice. But what I would encourage you to do is to start developing what, what you will call your theoretical orientation. Um, and really start to develop that as a base for your practice, for your, your, your profession um, as, as you would like it to exist, okay? So let's talk about some formal theories. Uh, next week, we will talk about some more uh, indigenous Native American type of theories, uh, because I think that's important. Um, and then uh, we'll also talk about helping skills, some specific helping skills um, and helping process along the way. So does anybody have any questions at this moment? Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So let's talk about probably the first theory we should start with, at least from uh, a formal kind of uh, professional perspective, is psychodynamic. And this is also called psychoanalytic theory. And the reason why I want to start with this theory, um, and I think I may have mentioned this in this course already is because when we look at the history of formal counseling and formal therapy as a profession where you, you, know, you, you get specific professional training and then you, you, you create a business, for example, put a shingle on a wall um, and you provide formal services where there's an arrangement for payment, whether it be through a grant or state funding or federal funding or a direct payment from a client in order to uh, uh, provide those services is that Sigmund Freud was one, was one of the first, him and his uh, colleague uh, Bruner, to come up with um, the, a term called the talking cure. The, the, the talking cure, uh, then would translate into psychotherapy or therapy or, or counseling. And this is really kind of where that formal process started. And, and his theory is really based on the idea of the unconscious mind, that what really drives uh, human beings is unconscious processes. And, you know, if you want to think about this as a marketing uh, pro, uh, uh, tool, well, actually, not, I won't get there right now. Um, and that the one thing that we need to understand about his theory is even though it was meant to be a theory for everyone uh, and applied to everybody, regardless of whether you're suffering from 
a mental illness or whether you're just um, uh, acting in the world, his theory was really based on his work with the mentally ill, uh, sexual assault victims and criminal and more criminal type minded individuals. So his theory really is a theory that um, was derived from directly working with people who are suffering from trauma or suffering from some type of mental illness. Um, and to kind of give it, let me, let me see if we have that. Okay. To kind of give it uh, some, some credence, the, the Freudian model is based on kind of a, what we call an iceberg model that much of our mental life that drives our behavior is largely um, unconscious. So if we look at an iceberg, about 10% of the iceberg sets above water and 90% of it sets below the water. And so if we think about the above water as the conscious level of, um, of, of life, so what we're aware of, uh, what Freud would consider safe for us to know and to have, that would represent about 10% of our actual existence. 90% of the reasons why we do what we do lie beneath the level of awareness. So if the, the, the crest of the water is awareness. We are 90% unaware of why we do what we do. And this 10% is the safe stuff that our mind allows us to have, okay? So let's go through this model and then I'll, I'll kind of put in my two cents about how it has influenced our perceptions of, of, of uh, our, the profession and everything else and how it has kind of stereotyped a lot of what we think about, about counselors and therapists. So Freud strongly believed in this idea of uh, evolution. And during his, his development, one thing that uh, uh, not many people know about Sigmund Freud is he was actually a psychiatrist. He was an MD. Um, and but he was trained in neuroscience. Uh, but because he was Jewish, he wasn't allowed to go into university and do uh, theoretical practice, or he wasn't able to do uh, teaching and research. Uh, and so he was kind of in a way forced uh, to go into the medical field instead of staying with neuroscience. Um, and open his own practice. Um, and doing so, um, he started to, because of his neuroscience training, he largely dealt with people who were thought to have brain disorders. Um, and largely this was people again, who, who uh, were experiencing a, a disorder known as hysteria at the time. Um, uh, and and people who are suffering from trauma. Um, and so what, he, so what he started to theorize is that he noticed that a lot of individuals that he was seeing don't really recognize the reason why they're experiencing 
the symptoms that they, that, that they had. And so he started to develop this idea of un, the unconscious. Now, his scientific part came out because he wanted his theory to be based in science. And at the time he was developing his theory, one of the biggest theories of the time was evolutionary theory um, uh, as it was being introduced. And he thought a lot about uh, this and, and he, he started to think that humans have to have some common uh, ancestral drive. There has to be something that um, continues to drive the individual. Um, and it has to be universal. It has to be common among everybody. And so what he did in his theory is he, he developed two kind of concepts of human existence that he recognized through his interaction with his clients. And he, uh, uh, he came to realize through talking with his clients that humans really have two very common themes. And he called these common themes, one as the life instinct. So we have life. I'll just use an L and we have a D for death instinct or the phantos instinct if we want to use that. So we have life and we have a death instinct. One, we're here to create more life. And two, one of the universal truths of life is that we'll all die. Well, these were very broad concepts, right? I mean, what, how do you explain these? How does this relate to human behavior and human personality and everything else? Well, what he's going to do is he's going to reduce the life instinct to what we would call the sex drive. Okay. And I won't spell it all out because uh, my spelling is horrible. I'll just use the letter uh, A. <laughs> is he's going to reduce the death instinct to what's called the aggression drive. So he's going to say that all human beings are driven by two basic drives. One is for sex and the other is for aggression. And he's going to locate these two drives in something he's gonna call the id. Now this is a German term and if we directly translate it, it means it, but it kind of goes beyond that is that the id is the location of all of our conscious powers, all of our mind. That's where the energy from our mind comes from. And the goal of the id is to satisfy our sexual and aggressive tendencies or our sexual and aggressive drive, okay? All right. So he's stating that, that, that we're driven by two basic needs and that um, this is the, really the only uh, evolutionary purpose of the mind, of, our, of us being able to consciously exist. But a lot of our sexual and aggressive drives are very dangerous for us to have. Um, you know, if, if uh, Sigmund Freud was here lecturing to all of you today, 
he would say, if we only had an id, uh, when everybody was, if we were in person, let's say we're all face-to-face in a, on campus, uh, he would say that uh, if we only had an id, uh, everyone would be trying to have sex with everybody else while beating up the person next to them. That would be satisfying their primal sexual aggressive drives. And so what Freud argued, and well, and is that if you could imagine if that was it, uh, humans wouldn't have survived very long. Uh, we would have went extinct a long time ago if, if, that was, if the id was released um, unchecked. So what he argued is that the id developed the ego. Now the ego has ex- access to our external world and the id, our sexual and aggressive needs. And what the job of the ego is, is to balance the needs of the external world while satisfying the needs of our basic human drives of sex and aggression. And so the ego has contact with the external world and it navigates the external world in order to make it so that we can um, uh, successfully satisfy those two basic needs. Now, again, if Freud was here today, he would explain our existence this way. Again, let's imagine we're in an on-campus class or even this virtual class, we could say this. And Freud would say uh, that, you know, you're not here looking all smart with your, with your, you know, your glasses and your notebooks and your computer and dressed uh, uh, to fit the situation to become a better educated person. No, if Freud was here, not, not Dr. Peterson, if Freud was here, he would say that you're here doing what you're doing because your ego is responding to the environment in hopes that at a future date, it would allow you to have sexual access to someone else in the group at a later date and a more appropriate time, okay? That's kind of how he conceptualized how the ego and it work together, okay? So this is pure Freudian theory. We're gonna see some evolution to his theory as we move along. This is just the pure interpretation of his theory, okay? So the as society became more and more complex and we started developing social contracts and we started developing religion in order to give us some guidance of how to exist and we started creating city states and governments to to try and control the the aggression that and and chaos we saw in our world in essence (laughs) the ego and the id kind of got together and said listen we've got to respond to this social demand that is put on us and so what the id and ego did is it developed the super ego now, the superego is kind of the, if you want to say, antichrist or the antagonist to the id. It is the moral component of our unconscious. It is the perfection uh, component of our unconscious. But um, I do want to make it clear for Freud, 
morality equaled perfection, okay? And it didn't necessarily mean things like happiness, uh, joy. It meant the person acted proper given the norms and social norms of that society, okay? So I just wanna make that clear. Okay, so this is his model that he's gonna use then to develop his therapies. Um, and, and just to go over, just as summarize, consciousness is what experience as reality and aware of. There are perceptual consciousness and our mental structures that are not threatening to us. Um, just a little joke. Okay. And some of the things that he's going to argue for is that um, we often have slips of our unconscious and, and the term Freudian slip is a common thing that, that has been kind of joked about in popular culture, you know, as this, uh, this news article puts off states, Republicans turn off by, by the size of Obama's package. Uh, this is what's called a slip is because it can take on a sexual innuendo and it would be argued that the writer was releasing part of his unconsciousness. And, and uh, we see this sometimes when we get cognitively busy and we say weird things. Those is what Freud would consider slips of the unconscious. Um, and the thing that Freud is going to argue, because you're unconscious, you don't have direct access to you're going to need someone who has specialized training uh, that can work with you, that can then gain access of your unconscious desires and what's going on in your unconscious to provide you with some information about yourself and information about um, the reason why you're having the troubles you're having. Okay, along with the social nomenclature of a, a Freudian slip, this is also the development of some of the stereotypes behind counselors and therapists and whatnot, is that if uh, the, I, I see this a lot, especially with the uh, 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 social media and stuff like that, a person is having a problem, they go to a friend and, and the friend says, you know, I'm really not qualified to help you, friend. You really should go see a counselor or a therapist. That stereotype came from Sigmund Freud because what he said is, is that only an expert with expert training can really help you with your problems because you're not aware of your problems. Um, and I will tell everybody this is a stereotype and uh, it, it, it doesn't really have credence in reality. Anybody can be a helper. Anybody can really help someone as we will see. But this is one of the stereotypes that counselors about the profession of counseling, that only a counselor can really help someone if they're having a mental or social problem. Um, and so, and, and they have to have some type of special expertise in order to help, okay? Uh, another thing that Freud gave us is, is uh, in society on a broader level, 
is uh, when we look at things, even like within the Bible and stuff, pre-Freudian, you don't get this notion of two things vying for your existence, the devil and the angel on your shoulder. This started being written into uh, popular religion and in religious writings after Freud introduced the concept of the id, which is a vying for your aggression and your satisfying your sexual needs and your super ego. This is when that concept of vying for your soul really started coming into play. Before then, it was just this idea that if you don't obey God, you will go to hell. But now with Freudian theory and popular uh, culture, it's now that there's these two entities vying for one soul. So that's another uh, thing that uh, Freud did to our popular culture or influenced our popular culture. Okay. And just to uh, uh, kind of um, uh, review again, the id is the primal part of the unconscious, uh, and it's driven by what's called the pleasure principle. Uh, the gratification of two basic instincts, eros and thantos, which are going to be reduced to sex and aggression, or life instinct, or the death instinct. Uh, the term libido uh, was developed by Freud to uh, denote psychic energy. But as we know today, the term libido uh, denotes someone's sexual prowess, um, but it originally meant how much energy your, your, your id was providing your mental life. It is the illogical component of our unconscious uh, because there's two very much opposing forces. And so it's primitive, chaotic, inaccessible, unchangeable, amoral, illogical and unorganized, but it is the basics of our psychic uh, mind. Again, our ego operates on what's called the reality principle, only portion of the unconscious that has contact with reality and seeks ways to mediate reality and the pleasure principle of the it. It is basically, if you want to think about like brain structures or the, 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 the a common cognitive model of the brain. It is the executive branch or the decision-making component of the unconscious. The superego, just as a review, is the, operates on the idealistic principle. Grows out of the ego, has no energy of itself or no contact with outside world. It's not driven by happiness, but by perfection. And the true the two driving forces of the ego is to tell us one, what we should not do. And our ego ideal is what we should do. And the purpose is to help control the sexual aggression, aggressional impulses of the id. So how these components work together is reality, the id and the super ego all put pressure on the ego, which then translates into our behavioral and emotional responses in reality. So this is gonna be his model he's gonna to use to, to uh, help people in a sense. And so if we kind of look at it at, in, in this way, 
about unconscious pre, uh, principle processes. If our id is oversized and we have a, a, a moderate ego and a smaller superego, according to Freud, we become pleasure seekers. We become people who seek instant gratification. Uh, we, we become thrill seekers. We uh, are more likely to uh, become addicts because we're always seeking that next pleasure, okay? If we have an oversized superego, we become guilt-ridden. We have things like anxiety. We uh, have over-concerns about what other people are thinking and, 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 and the like. And so if we think about it, this leads to, if you want to think about it, uh, depressive type disorders. This one leads to more psychosis or psychotic type disorders. And according to Freud, a healthy balance is a good sized ego with an equal sized id and an equal sized superego. So this is just an example of how he thought these played together and how they work together. Okay. And, uh, you know, if we look at uh, some of his other theories, he, he was one of the few, it's interesting, he's one of the few to try and explain things like sadism and masochism and narcissism. Um, he believed, in, in, and this is still kind of the definition, narcissism is an extreme self-love for oneself. Um, sadism is when uh, you seek sexual pleasure through uh, the, from, from inflicting pain. And masochism is when we seek sexual pleasure from suffering from pain or humiliation. And what Freud uh, argued is that this is because you have that oversized id and the sexual and aggression components of your unconscious are really taking over the existence of the individual. Um, and uh, he said, love is basically the libido invested in an object or a person. Okay, so that is, <laughs> that is Freudian theory. Um, I will say, you know, it, there is some precedences for unconscious processes. Um, uh, and we can look at those as we move along. Um, I'm wondering, though, before we get into defense mechanism, which is the part that we still really take into consideration in counseling and therapy, is there any questions concerning Freudian psychodynamic psychoanalysis theory um, that, that, that has been presented? Is there any questions on that? Thank you, Nelly, Ava, Anna, Tamara. Okay. So what I would what I would tell everyone at this moment is is do we have unconscious processes that still drive our behavior? Yes, there is, um, and and they they should be noted. Uh, are we just driven by sex and aggression? There's not much evidence for that. And one of the bigger problems with Freudian theory is that it's not really scientifically testable because it's a circular argument. 
there's always an answer um, for, for whatever questions we have. However, in the field, there are still some, some things that we do recognize. Uh, what Freud argued is that when the ego has an insult to it, that, 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 that it feels like uh, there are things being done to us that is going to harm our libido or id or superego, it comes up with what are called defense mechanisms. Uh, in modern terms, uh, if, if, if you do groups or something like this, the analogy to this are things that they're called more like thinking errors today. Um, and there's many more thinking errors than there are defense mechanisms, but this is a good place to start. And the reason why I would encourage you to look at these is that when you're in the group setting, um, it's important to recognize when somebody is in denial or repression or is in projection or regression, because that kind of tells you as the group facilitator where that group member is in their recovery. Because if they're using these defense mechanisms, they're really at a state of um, vulnerability. And I'm, I'm not going to say a, a, a state of defensiveness, but a state of vulnerability. And sometimes you'll wanna back off on a topic, uh, but dependent upon it, you might also want to push it even more, dependent upon how you're viewing the individual's use of these defense mechanisms. So we'll go through these really uh, uh, quickly. Uh, the first one is denial. This is not acknowledging that uh, there is a problem. Uh, uh, the example given is a person who's diagnosed with HIV positive, uh, but is adamant that a mistake was made. So they go to other doctors or they blame the doctor, say the doctor was lousy, didn't know what he was talking about. The way I've seen denial is uh, when I did uh, addiction groups and relapse prevention groups is that it's uh, individuals who are kind of forced into a group because of the legal system and they deny that they have a drinking problem or a drug problem. And really within the addiction field, this should be a, a, a big uh, kind of red flag for the counselor because we know that, especially for addiction recovery, but recovery from any of the things that we're talking about, a person cannot uh, go through the helping process until they get out of the denial phase and they accept the, the, the problem that, that they have. And so, uh, especially in the beginning of groups, uh, especially when you're working in groups where the, the, the participants are forced to be here, if you have a large amount of denial, uh, you'll want to spend some more time talking about you know, uh, what addiction is and, and doing more of the education and asking how that might relate to, to the individual's life. Uh, because, uh, uh, you know, um, we know that people who are unsuccessful with, with drug and alcohol rehab are people who go through that drug and alcohol rehab in a state of complete denial. So uh, that, that's kind of where that one plays out a lot. Um, repression is suppressing a memory until it disappears 
into uh, the subconscious. Uh, so a, the example is as a woman doesn't recall being raped. Okay, now this is an important thing to state is a person cannot consciously repress a memory. A person cannot choose to forget something. And this, uh, this is uh, uh, um, done in, a, in kind of an example that's done in research and whatnot is if I, I asked everybody to imagine a pink elephant. So I want everybody to put in their mind this pink elephant. Uh, it, it can be a stuffed toy element. It could be elephant. It could be a, a you know a live existing elephant, but it's pink. And if I were to ask you to tell me when you forget about that pink elephant, we'd spend the rest of the semester trying to forget that pink elephant because once you tell me. I'm not thinking about the pink elephant anymore. Guess what? You start thinking about the pink elephant, okay? So how does repression really work? Repression actually really works on the subconscious level. And before I get there, yes, you cannot have memory recall due to a drug or an alcohol blackout. So those are some instances that is chemically induced uh, repression. But when I'm talking about repression, I'm talking about trauma that has existed to the person. The, the memory system in the brain has a uh, safety net in it. In that if you have an experience that the, and I'm going to put, I'm going to give the brain some consciousness here. If the brain feels it's not safe for you to remember, that, that having that memory at that moment would be dangerous for you, the brain has neural mechanisms to block that memory from the higher areas of your brain to consciously recall. And we often see this in trauma. Um, when I worked with, uh, for example, sexual assault victims, um, uh, I always used to uh, take out a calendar when I was working with the survivor now at this point, and I would always kind of go about nine months past their trauma date. And I would always try to contact them about nine months after that, that rape incident, especially if it was a stranger rape or something like that, uh, or sexual assault. And the reason is, is that around the nine month part, uh, part it seemed to be, the, the survivor started to feel safe. Uh, they've maybe uh, resolved the environmental issues that, 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 that were associated with the trauma they experienced. They uh, are feeling more secure. Usually by then their relationship with an intimate partner has either dissolved and they've, they've started to move on or it's strengthened and, and is getting better. Um, at that moment, uh, what would happen if I were to put it in neural terms is the brain's going, we're safe. So here you go, here's your memories. And it was usually around the nine month mark where 
uh, survivors would start coming to me or I'd get a hold of them and say, how are you doing? And they'd start saying, I'm having nightmares. I'm having triggers during the day. I'm having panic attacks. I'm, I'm starting to remember all of these things that happened. And it's because at that point, the brain has said, you're in a safe place. Here you go. Here's your memories. Um, working with adult survivors of uh, child abuse and child sexual abuse is what I, I specialized in in my latter days in my clinical career. Uh, when dealing with adult survivors um, and in and memory recall of the trauma they experienced as children often happen once they left that family environment. And later on, after they've developed their own self, they've gone maybe to college and they're working on careers and stuff like this, since they've removed themselves from that traumatic childhood environment, then that's when they start having these night terrors and these nightmares and these flashbacks and these things, because again, the brain is at a point where it's saying you're safe now, you've gotten us out of that abusive environment. And so here you go. Um, and that's been a lot of adult survivors experience who have had repressed memories of, of childhood abuse. I will say uh, when we're dealing with these issues, we do have to be careful as counselors and therapists and not seed the idea. If you are working with adult survivors of trauma, you do need to make sure you get very specialized training because what we found in the late 1990s when a lot of cases of, of child trauma came out in adults because of return memories is Unfortunately, many of those is because the counselor or the therapist seeded those, those, those ideas in the individual who didn't understand why they were experiencing what they were experiencing. And so the therapist seeded the idea, well, maybe you were raped as a teen or maybe you were molested as a child. And, and then they rolled with that idea to try and explain the trauma the person was going through. And then in an analysis, we found out that, that unfortunately we put that individuals through even more trauma by seeding that. So if you do work with adult survivors of childhood trauma, make sure you do go and get that specialized training, okay? The next one is projection. And that's putting your own beliefs and behaviors onto someone else. Um, Let me make sure I always get projection uh, mixed up with displacement. Okay, this is, uh, uh, for example, uh, the, the example of projection is talking about how stupid a video game system is with someone else, uh, believing that they must feel the same even though they have never said so. Um, and so projection, um, is putting one's own belief and behaviors onto someone else. And, and the way that uh, I have seen this is, is uh, working with uh, adult offenders, especially, especially adult sexual offenders, is um, you know, one of the, the interesting things about looking at uh, adult offenders is that if you look at things like their ta 
tax records and stuff and look at the donations that they do, they often are really good donators to the local uh, abuse and sexual assault shelters and, and that uh, because, and they talk very nasty about people who rape. They talk very nasty about people who child molest uh, when they themselves um, are, are the ones who are committing those types of, 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 of uh, crimes, as you would say. And that's a form of projection, putting your own thoughts and beliefs that you don't find comfortable about you and putting that on someone else, saying it's them, it's not me, I really don't feel that way, they must, um, and that kind of thing. So that's projection. Um, and we see this a lot uh, if you work with offenders, so they'll often um, um, say that, you know, it's not them, it's other people who do things and, and the like, okay? Regression is acting in a way that is not typical for your age, okay? And again, um, going back to my experience working with uh, uh, sexual assault survivors and um, domestic uh, violence survivors is is and preparing them for things like court um, and and if it goes to trial and, and of course these poor individuals have to get up on a trial stand and and um, uh, understand and, and, and state what happened to them well unfortunately defense attorneys know about regression very well okay when we get so stressed when we become so overwhelmed with our world and things are just pushing down on us, our brain goes through a natural regressive state to its most well-learned behaviors that sit within the hippocampal areas of the, the brain where our most tightly learned behaviors exist. And what are our most well-learned behaviors? When do we learn them? Is between the age of three and six years old. And so it's very common for someone who is becoming very, very overwhelmed and stressed to regress to the age of three to six-year-old. Probably, you know, the most kind of simplest example of this is, is uh, people who are married or in a relationship and you have to have one of those difficult conversations with your partner. And, and I'll, I'll use kind of a, a dorky one. I'll just say, let's say uh, you, me and, and, and my partner had an agreement not to leave the bread out because it makes it stale and it makes it all, all uh, uh, yucky and unusable. It's a waste. Okay. And so let's say I come home one day and and I notice that bread is out and, and I reach in and the bread is already brittle and I have to throw out a few slices. And, and in that time, I'm like, okay, this is the conversation I need to have with my partner. And in the beginning, we create a very logical, very pointed uh, list of, of what we need to talk to our partner about, unless we're, you know, very emotionally driven. And sometimes we, it's more emotional than it is 
rational. But in this case, let's say we come with and, and we're just going to confront them. We're going to be adults about this and we're going to uh, 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 do that. And, and then what commonly happens, right? The partner comes home and you say, honey, we need to have a talk. Um, I notice you left the bread out again. And of course, common response is, oh, I forgot. And then you go, you know, well, I understand, but we have this agreement. And then they start saying, well, it's just stupid. It's just, and we start doing this, but this, but that, but this. And then all of a sudden we're doing this little kid thing back and forth, kind of yelling at each other, kind of slapping each other, not, well, not slapping, but kind of, you know, and, and it degresses into what we would see on an elementary school playground. Okay, that's an example of regression. Okay, where we see this in the group setting is if you notice your clients getting more into a fetal position when their behaviors are starting to uh, kind of have that regress, crying when not appropriate, um, uh, kind of doing more childish behavior, that would be a time to back off and do some type of calming exercise. Um, I'll go back to my, my example of preparing survivors for court because defense attorneys know this is what they'll do with, with many of these uh, uh, individuals, these, these, these survivors, is that they'll stress them out. They'll ask questions, they'll interrupt them, and they'll get them stressed and stressed and stressed. And if, you know, you know a lot of three to six-year-olds, when they don't know what to do, they'll either cry or laugh. And, some, and a lot of times it's laugh. I think about when I was a kid and I didn't know what to do, I just laughed. And what a defense attorney would do is get that person so stressed out, the, the survivor would laugh and the defense attorney would point at the survivor and say, ha, see, she or he thinks this is a joke. She's laughing or he's laughing they're not making this up, this should be thrown out. I've seen that many, many times with defense attorneys. And if you do works with survivors, uh, do please, and they have to go on a stand, please do spend a lot of time with the prosecutor and the client preparing them for that stand. But that's an example of regression um, that is unfortunate. It. Um, the other two, and I know I'm getting a little uh, out of time here, is displacement is showing, showing emotion towards someone or something completely unrelated to which caused the emotion. So this is when an alcoholic gets in a car accident uh, when driving drunk and blames his wife who is at home. Um, and you see displacement a lot working with offenders. Um, you know, uh, oftentimes when a, a, a offender is, is in a treatment group that I work with at least, and, and I know this is very common, is you ask, why are you here? They'll say, well, I had a horrible attorney. I had a mean judge. Uh, I, the cops were horrible. Um, but you won't hear, you often don't hear, uh, well, you know, I, I did something, you know, I, maybe they still don't think their sentencing was fair, but they, they can admit to, you know, their, their culpability and what happened. And when you're working with individuals who are constantly, constantly blaming or, or projecting onto other people that the external world is the cause of the reason why they ended up where they are, 
that's kind of a key of success is when you start seeing them saying, okay, well, yeah, okay, the cops were that way, but I also see where, 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 where I added to that situation and, and maybe I shouldn't have told the judge that I thought this was ridiculous because, and those types of, types of hints of conversation where there's this personal responsibility that starts to take place. So that's displacement. Rationalization is making up explanations for something that has happened. So a rapist thinks that since the girl he is raping looked like him, looked at him seductively one time, it must be okay to rape her. Um, most commonly, you know, when, when, when I was dealing with the childhood survivors uh, and it was the father, I often heard, oh, it's because she looked like her mother. Um, that was one of the most common uh, excuses I heard from fathers who, who molested their daughters. And it was kind of interesting, I, even working with uh, young boys, it was the same thing. Um, so that's rationalization. And again, what you want as a counselor is you want to uh, start looking for that person to say, you know what, uh, that person didn't deserve that. I'm the one that really caused that behavior. And so that's, that's the culmination of rationalization. I'm going to skip that one. All right, does anybody have any questions about defense mechanisms and how you can use them as a group facilitator to kind of see where your participants are at in their recovery? No. Okay, thank you. Okay. Sometimes I wonder if I need to put a trigger warning in some of these lectures. Okay. Okay. Uh, Klein, uh, you have your hand up, sir. Uh, yes. Um, I, uh, my appointment, I, I, I do run groups and the defense mechanism that we just gone through, I, I, there's, I see some of these and um, I, I, first of all, I work in a, a substance abuse rehab center and sometimes we get offenders that are there at the urgent of their PO and these are some of the things that I see with them. Those that are there for self-referral, they are more active, they're more talkative in our group sessions, but those that were, um, were there through their PO, I, I see once in a while, probably the, the defense mechanism. So this is very helpful. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. And, and uh, you know, one thing to keep in mind is one, you can look at them to see if they're going through recovery, right? So once they stop using those defense mechanisms or at least taking partial acceptance, that's when you can see success. But also I, I, I will really urge, you know, uh, when you're providing your clinical impressions to uh, POs and stuff is uh, use these defense mechanisms. And if a person goes completely through a class and they use all of these completely through the class, that should inform your recommendations to 
to uh, the entities that referred those individuals. So that's another way you can use these tools. But thank you for bringing that up because, um, yeah, I saw this as well a lot in the addiction field as well. Um, uh, again, when I worked with addiction, it was actually in the prison system. I didn't work any of the outpatient uh, ones, but um, this was very common. So thank you for that, uh, those comments. Um, Kathleen, uh, you have your hand up. I would say that, and I've worked in uh, drug testing facilities doing the drug tests and it's the same. There's been, that's, that's helpful. Cause I just kind of reflected, it's been years, years ago, but um, yeah, I noticed some of those too, even doing, even working with them with the drug testing process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's really interesting what we do to protect our own self image. And, and really when we look at ego, what ego protection, as Freud said it, that's really what the individual is doing with all of these defense mechanism. And something we should recognize as, as, as helpers is these are, this is an individual who, who is suffering such impact, the way they view themselves, that these defense mechanisms are a way to deny or to let go or repress the, the, that view that the individual has of who they are as a person. Um, and definitely, you know, going through the legal system and all those drug testing, you, you, and, and, and even when people know that they've done something wrong, they have that urge to protect their, their ego, as you would say. So very, thank you for that insight. That, that's great insight. And uh, to uh, Anna, yes, um, uh, so this presentation will be posted in um, uh, Canvas. Uh, uh, I was, I, when I'll finish the video today. We won't finish the stuff today, but I'll go ahead and post the PTF version of this presentation in, in Canvas. So, um, Yes, Canvas files. So they'll be there uh, uh, later on this afternoon after I get the recording done. So uh, where I do want to end uh, today, oh, actually I can't end today because we're after, out of time. But where we're gonna head is going into humanistic approach. Now, uh, I, I will put this preview out. Uh, humanistic approach is about um, the relationship between the counselor and client. And so that's kind of where we're gonna go with this next theory is really humanistic theory, whether you take a Freudian approach or you take a cognitive behavioral approach or you take a, a eclectic, whatever approach you use to in, in your group setting or your counseling setting, the majority of counselors start with the humanistic approach because it focuses on the relationship between the helper and the person who's receiving help. So that's where we'll head um, this coming Tuesday when we return to class. Um, is there any other questions or comments for today? We're, we're, we're kind of out of time. Uh, so I want to uh, respect that with everybody. Is there any other quick questions before we let everyone go? No, sir, I don't have any questions. Okay, thank you, Mallory. Thank you, Claudia and Anna. Okay, so let's get out of here so that we're respecting everybody's time and have a wonderful uh, weekend and we will see you all on Tuesday.